Hello and welcome to the podcast where conversation is alive and well. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich. And today we talk about a way to enhance conversation and create connection. Today's topic has to do with storytelling and a man who spent a long and fruitful life gathering stories that have touched his life and impact others. Our guest is Carmen Mariano, a longtime educator, coach, mentor, and friend to many. And he's written something very cool called The Strength of a Story, Earn the Eyes and Ears of Any Audience. As he says, we learn through stories, we laugh through them, and we live through them as well. And although this book serves as a wonderful primer for those who want to practice their public speaking skills, I would say it offers even more, the world's greatest gifts, gifts that never stop giving. So it's story time on the podcast as we explore the strength of a story and invite Carmen Mariano to join us on mic. It's great to sit down with the storyteller himself, the man who's amassed all these wonderful stories. And Carmen, uh, there's always the uh, the question, why does somebody take on this journey, take on this mission? So what was it that impelled you to do this? Well, th- first, thank you, Jordan. You're welcome. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here. Well, nice to have you. As for why I wrote my book, two things made me do it. One was hallowed ground. The other... Words of wonder. What is hallowed ground? Jordan, I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) Okay. What is hallowed ground? I'll ask it again. It is the invisible stage at the front of every audience on which all speakers stand as they address their audience. It is on that sacred space that all successful speakers say or do something, anything, that makes their audience laugh, cry, listen, think, feel, remember, and more. Well, you're definitely talking to the right guy because I do a lot of talks, as you can imagine. And I love that expression, hallowed ground. It is an honor to be in front of people and lead any kind of discussion or inspire or educate or amuse or entertain. So I'm digging what you're saying right off the bat. Well, I'm glad. That's great. I'm glad. Um, And the fact that you have a background as a teacher, an educator, a coach, is probably something that it it almost became a natural outgrowth of what you do to be this guy to collect stories and tell them, right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So what about this particular book? Uh, We'll talk about how it comes together, but what made you write this book now? As a speaker— I've stood on that hallowed ground many times, and I love standing there. I wrote the book to help other speakers find their hallowed ground just as I did. I wish my hallowed ground was bigger. I wish it gave me more room to write because writing helps me speak and speaking helps me write. Mm. My stories help them all. When I was six years old, my father gave me some advice. He said, come in, whatever you do, stay in school. (laughs) And I listened to my dad. I did stay in school for 69 years. That's right. I'm 75 years old, and I've been in school as a student, teacher, coach, or administrator since I was six. Now, I'm going to tell you a story, the oldest joke in the book. Uh, I'm now working on my third book, and the joke is I hope to be able to read my fourth one in due time. 
because <laughs> when you said 69 years in school, we should. I'm glad you prefaced that or added the uh, the uh, caveat that yes, most of that time has been teaching <laughs> on the other end. That's important. So you've got this book of stories, but it has to start somewhere. How did you choose these stories? What was the criteria for choosing the stories? Well, for for starters, I, I looked at the truth. I looked at the world as it exists, or at least as I mm-hmm. think it ex- exists. Many of the stories are based on truth, not necessarily point-by-point point true, but based on truth. And people can trust me and my work in that regard. Will I exaggerate? No. Will I move into something that is untrue? No. Might I change a fact a little bit to add some humor to it, to add some excitement to it? Yes. I want to stop there and ask you about the chapters. I know we're going to get into some stories specifically, but the first chapter has to do with giving meaning to words. The second one, giving muscle to our messages, giving magic to our memories. You really thought this through very orderly, didn't you? Well, you mentioned you know, a little earlier my affinity and my, my work as a teacher. That was my life's work, and it, and it still is. And I look at teaching as every form of human activity. It is in many ways an art. It is also in many, many ways a science. It's in many ways a social science. It takes in so many pieces of the human identity and of the human commitment right. and human Human experience, experience. You know, the, the idea of story is so human and so much part of the culture of man. You can go back to the caveman days. I mean, the, the stories on the cave walls. It's also about leadership, isn't it? If somebody can lead you in a story, in a parable, in a poem, in, in an inspiring speech in a locker room, that's a symbol of that person's ability to lead others, hopefully in a positive way. And leadership's an interesting science as well. You know, I ask people many times, would you like to be a leader? Are you a leader? And, you know, many times they'll say yes or or want to at least say yes. Follow the question up with, well, then what do you think it takes to be a leader? Mm. And many of them will tell me communication, intelligence, hard work, good looks. But very few of them give what I consider to be the right answer. And the right answer is very simple, one word, followers. It takes followers to be a leader. Beyond that, it doesn't matter. If we're on the moon with a number of other people who we don't know, and one of the people in our group, any one of those people, turns his back or her back to all the rest of them and walks away, stops after 100 yards, and looks back over his or her shoulder, the one that sees people back there is the leader. Mm. Why? Because those people followed the leader. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. It's very factual to me in in the sense that there is no other requirement of a leader. And as I read through the book and all the great stories, and so many of them are just fun, flip, humorous pieces, that's a symbol of leadership too, when you can take somebody out of their world and lead them into something less divisive, more fun, that gets them out of their bubble or out of their shell. You know, a person who can lead a a group with a story, a funny story to break up the ice and make things happen. That's a gift. I love that. And what your book does, the strength of a story really is it's providing a uh, how-to kit with a lot of good stories to, may I say, borrow 
to get to break the ice. Yes. It started in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Doing one thing that seems to be impossible to every teacher at least once a day. And that one thing is to attract students' attention. Oh, yes. You've got to entertain them. We have them. nothing without their attention. There are many, many ways to do that. None of them are easy. But if you can put yourself in a position to attract attention, then you're going to teach better. There's no question. You're going to lead better. There is no question. That, more than anything, is what attracted me to storytelling through teaching. I would go into classes. I taught mostly math, Mm. very few of the subjects that you think would be related. Yeah, math is math. Two plus two is always going to equal four. But uh, you found a way in a very, shall we say, stodgy subject or disciplined subject to break through and get people to pay attention. And uh, one of the things that I'm reminded of is, I mean, all the times I've sat through sermons, I'm Jewish, so whether it be from a rabbi or when I've attended churches or whatever, any kind of religious or moral or spiritual session, a sermon only really works when there's a story that we can relate to. You did a lot of coaching, including wrestling and football and all that. And man, the idea of elevating people and getting them excited about winning or at least trying is trying, is difficult. Do you recall, and we'll get into some stories in the book, but do you recall how you use story as a coach? Yes, a lot of times you would set goals through stories. You you would talk about a member of our team who had graduated and, and mm. didn't perform all that well while a member of the team, but who went on to college and caught the fire and got it and developed a, enough talent and tenacity to become more successful than anyone who was still on the team would have dreamed, including me. And we would talk, we would reflect on the story of some of those wrestlers' lives, both when they were on the team and beyond, and then point them, make them the goal of the kids who were still on the team. So we were actually, actually using the story of their life to build a target for the team members who are still there. Because when we feel that we can relate to the subject or the subject matter, we are part of that story all of a sudden. It's so, it, it, it is magical, right? Mm-hmm. I've talked to so many groups and done so many things, and I love to use an icebreaker of something funny or something maybe a little more inspiring. And you just, you know when you got them. <laughs> There's a connection there that's almost impalpable, but it's, it's real. A question you get asked now a lot on the book tour is, are these stories true? And there are so many, there are hundreds of them. But how do you answer that? How do you respond to that question? Uh, most, but not all. That's the the safest and the, and the best and, way and I can I'm, say. I'm assuming you're going to answer the way I would answer. They don't have to be. Right. Now, again, if it's a story that is proving a point, it's more important, I think, that the story be true. If we are pointing towards a role model, whether it be someone close to the school or the team or whether it be someone else in the real world whose life we, we're, we're focusing on, either at practice or in class, then it's very important, I think, that what you talk about is true. If you're right. using it as a target, if you're using it as an example, then it should be something that is true so that the use is bona fide, the use is appropriate. So you're Italian. No yes. doubt of that, with a name like Mariano, Carmen Mariano, for granted loud. So you talk a lot about your family. 
There's stories and families. I mean, my, I can go on for a million years. That's how stand-up comics become so popular. But mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about your family and why that was a rich, fertile resource for stories. Well, both quality and quantity can come into <laughs> my, my life uh, with my family as, as well. As, as, as you know from, from reading the book, I, I do come from an, a lot of big families. It's a little hard to map out. But on her side of the family, she alone yeah. had a total of 16. Yeah. On top of that, my father's family mm-hmm. had 16 brothers. No sisters, but 16 brothers. Oh, my God. So it's quite... <laughs> that's, that's a lot of meatballs yeah. on, the, on the plate yeah. every Sunday. Yeah. Wow. It, it was. And it, it's a, and it was a lot of stories. Oh, my gosh. Rich. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and all, going in all directions. I, I mean, you had so many of them involved with the wars. And uh, again, so many of them were male. So many of them were boys. That they, they were living through the wars, through their mothers' hearts, because their mothers were uh, thinking and praying for that many sons during the war. Of course. In fact, one story on, on my mother's side... She had that many brothers, and of that many brothers, all of them in some way touched a war. They mm. left the country to touch a war. Either mm. They were drafted to the in- infantry, or they were, uh, became a, a clerk overseas, doing something that their life touched the war. All of them, through my, grandma, my grandmother's prayers and, and her daughters, all of them came home. One of them never left and didn't come home. No kidding. Only one of my mother's brothers That's quite a story. died during the war. And he didn't serve overseas? He, no. He served as a machinist okay, so, building ships at the fort of a shipyard. But he wasn't in, in the trenches, quote-unquote. No, he was, he, he was not I, enlisted what a in sad any irony. service. Sad irony. Yeah. Wow. Uh, there's a story about your mother. I'll just mention it. Number... 12, question mark. My mother liked to share. She also liked to shop. This sounds like my mother, by the way. And she talked to anyone. And right there, you could just start right there and go, right, with one of a million stories about your mother. Yeah. And you also have a ton of stuff that's right from the classroom, from fellow teachers to students and things like that. Do you want to just recount one or two from the school days? What comes to mind when you think of a good school story that's in the book? Well, it relates more to, again, a group, a team, one of my uh, wrestling teams. When Danny started wrestling for us, the team— Dan Tebow, who's our publisher of these podcasts. That's just want to make that clear. Thank you. He was very new because the team was very new, and I was very new. And we were extremely unsuccessful. We were unsuccessful together, which was good news, but we were (laughs) unsuccessful. As time went on, though— it took about four years. We had enough talented athletes who wanted success and who demanded success that things changed enormously in a very short period of time, and especially as it related to one team. And I won't mention the team because it's a local team, and it would sound like we're more, a little more adversarial, but some, some of my best friends today mm. coached and worked on that team. Mm-hmm. And they were a very large high school with a very large wrestling team. And we wrestled them every year 
and again, consistently unsuccessfully. Mm. The third year that we wrestled that team, we lost every match, which really boils down to 13 matches, 13 wrestlers. Every single one of our wrestlers lost their match to their wrestler. Three years later, same team, meaning not the same athletes, but the same high school, came back to wrestle us. After laughing at us during the losses the two years before, and we not only beat them that year, we beat them every year after that that I continued coaching. So we beat them 10 years in a row. Whoa. After having lost to them what amounts to 60 to nothing, to, to, mm. for every wrestler to lose in the same match, mm -hmm. looks like 60 to nothing on the scoreboard. And again, I am very irrelevant in that story. My wrestlers are, because I didn't have a uniform on. They did, had the uniforms on. But a lot of what they drew from, a lot of what my kids and my teams drew from was prior success at heavy costs. They made a decision that they were, they were going to be successful. The method, as long as it was obviously legal, didn't matter. Didn't matter, yeah. You know, it's, as you're speaking to me, Carmen, I'm thinking about structure of good literature and good stories. And most stories have, whether they're told off the cuff or written down or, you know, put in a Hallmark card, most stories have an opening, an introduction, a, a presentation of an idea, and then an arc where the story builds and builds and builds. And then the old Paul Harvey, what's the rest of the story? I'm going to call it, for lack of a better term, the punchline. What I love about your work in this book, and people should get the strength of a story and just read through them. You can pick up a page at a time or just flip through it, is that um, almost every story, well, I'll say it, every story has that build and at times a surprise ending, at times you know exactly what's coming, but it has a conclusion. So in other words, it's, it's available to someone as a standalone. <laughs> Am I describing it the right way, the way I see it? I take it as a compliment, yeah, okay. because it's something that throughout the book I, I tried to point toward. I, I tried to segment the, the book and the stories so that on the one hand, the reader could compartmentalize, could, yes. uh, you know what, I really want to see what's happening with Common's book tonight, but I don't really do want to spend an hour and a half or 15 minutes uh, reading it. All I want to do is get to the next crescendo, get to the next smile, the next aha, the next victory. And I tried to build, not story by story, but section by section around that, so that I want, again, Make them laugh, make them think, make them cry. I wanted every reader to continue reading until they laughed, thought, or cried. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic because the emotion that is, that is brought forth when you read a story. For instance, uh, I'm just flipping through it as I talk to you and remembering. Uh, you, you talk about failure and success and so forth, and you, you tell the story – Again, you got to be of a certain age or you have to know your history of the Edsel, the Ford Edsel, which was the, considered the, the greatest failure in modern manufacturing history, certainly in car industry. But it, for people to hear that in a short nugget and understand what that meant and how it applies to us and that, you know, if your name is Edsel, you're always going to live with that, but it doesn't mean you're a failure. It, it's wonderful stuff. And I, I, I felt that way. I, I, I felt um, just that way. 
And, and so many of my family and friends have generated those emotions back at me since writing the book. And I, I, I can't tell them or you how much that has meant to me. This was not any form of an economic exercise. It, it, it isn't. It never will be. This was much more personal. It really had to do with stepping back as I face retirement mm-hmm. on my, my profession and my life and ask myself, did I give enough? I gave a lot because I gave the time of my life. But did I give enough back for what I was given? And as I wrote the book, I tried to tell the people who were reading it that they helped me give back enough. Because many of them are friends. Many of them are family. Mm-hmm. And I wanted, I kind of wanted to say, okay, let's look at the cover. There's a name, Carmen Mariano. He's the author. There's another name. It's The Strength of a, of a Story. That's the title. Not so fast. You missed on the first one. The author isn't Carmen Mariano. Carmen Mariano is not much more than the secretary, <laughs> the, the, the scribe. The author wrote the book by living their lives. Yeah, There isn't a story in there that I didn't write. I, I mean, physically write. Yes, I wrote every one, no, uh, but you, I didn't live every one. All right, one. don't, don't they, sell they, yourself too short, Mr. Scribe, because, you know, the, the folks who wrote the Bible and, and others— uh, through history, um, people who have recorded material. I mean, I record voices. I record, you know, interaction. That's that's an, of an audio. You're doing the same thing. You're you're making a record of some of the great stories that have affected you and you've heard and you've adapted. It's not that much far away from uh, a book of etiquette in a way, because this this allows people to. A lot of people need icebreakers. Let's put it put it bluntly. A lot of people could use a great story, businesses and organizations and teachers and friends. Often one of the things that drives me nuts is when you go to a restaurant, you see two people sitting across from each other and they're looking at their phones. Yeah. Pick up Carmen's book, The Strength of a Story, and just uh, share a story from the book. It'll it'll make the dinner much more fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. So you're retired from the schoolroom, is that right? Am I, or are you still involved in any kind of on-site teaching of any kind? Uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm still very attached to um, Quincy High School, which is where I coached, mm-hmm. and Archbishop Williams High School, which is in Braintree, not, not very far from here not at all. Not very far from here in the Boston I, area, yeah. Yeah, and I'm still very close to them. That's my alma mater. That's where I graduated from, mm-hmm. and I was, was there as um, president and principal for a number of years. So I've, I've made and kept very valuable personal contacts especially with those two schools, but with, with many others. I've done a lot of teaching in graduate school around educational leadership. Teaching is, uh, it, it's often maligned because of the politics that are involved these days, but uh, I couldn't agree with you more that it's an art, a science, and it's it's giving of yourself. I also wanted to mention your wife, who's a delight. We met her in the green Thank room, you. as they say, and she's been in the healthcare field for decades, helping people, and seems to be part of your DNA. But I, I, I can't help thinking of um, when Dan approached me, and that's how I got to meet you through our wonderful 
producer and publisher Dan Tebow, Fast Twitch Media, a little plug for him. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't help think of a couple of movies. Um, one comes to mind is Mr. Holland's Opus. I don't yes, know if you remember that. I do. You're a regular Mr. Holland because people do remember. And I think the stories have helped solidify that connection you have with these students and teachers and people. Oh, there's, there's, there's no... Uh, you feel that in, Again, in my mind, it's part of the yardstick uh, of a teacher doesn't end when, when a given student graduates. Uh, it, it does not happen. The, the yardstick continues to grow wherever Didi and I are. It's almost like we, we keep score. Uh, we'll go to a, a girls' basketball game and we'll keep score on the court, obviously. You know, as, as I hope Archbridge Williams is winning. What is the score? But just as importantly, we keep score of how many graduates are in the gym and how many came by and recognized us. Yeah. And not as a test of their remembering, mm. more of a test of did we give back enough? Wonderful message. Wonderful message. All borne out on these pages in a book called The Strength of a Story, Earn the Eyes and Ears of Any Audience. That's why I call it a how-to book for people. It it works on two levels. It works on the level, and hopefully for both for people, it'll work on both levels as a uh, inspiring, wonderful, thought-provoking, emotion-provoking piece. But also, I'm going to say it as a wonderful primer for speakers who want to kick off an, an event. And with your permission, I'm going to borrow a few. I'll give you credit, but I'm going to borrow a few. Love, love it. And it's uh, self-published, but you can get it uh, through Amazon.com. Carmen Mariano, M-A-R-I-A-N-O. There's no question about his Italian family background. <laughs> How many of them are floating around out there? There's a lot of Marianos. But I really appreciate you coming in and chatting with us about it because it's uh, we just told some stories about you and, and your thought process. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. It's a book to keep handy and share with family and friends. The Strength of a Story, Earn the Eyes and Ears of Any Audience by a wonderful guy, Carmen Mariano. Order the book today on Amazon. You won't be disappointed. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, who, by the way, brought Carmen to the program today. Appreciate that, Dan. To Ken Carberry and everyone at Chart Productions in Boston, where we produce this and many other podcasts. And as always, a heartfelt thank you to the audience. Yes, you, for subscribing and downloading this podcast and sharing it with friends. Very much appreciated. Till next time, JR saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>